Welcome to Linworth Road Church, helping people become fully alive, fully mature, and fully on mission. Visit linworthroadchurch.com to learn more. It's great to be here this morning. My name is Nick Lashivo. For those of you who don't know, uh, I am the Worship and Creative Arts Director here at Linworth. I'm also a pastor in training here, an elder in training. We use those terms interchangeably, and so that just simply means that I'm on a track here to, uh, Lord willing, become a pastor and elder here at Linworth. And uh, with Chris being on sabbatical right now, I was asked to share in this uh, series that we started last week. We're in our second week on uh, a series on the parables. And my good buddy, Nick Carruthers, he's my good buddy. I don't know if you guys know that or not. We've been friends for a long time. He started us off last week in this series. And last week, he did a really good job of explaining to us what a parable is. He did a really good job of explaining why Jesus even taught in parables. And for the sake of not being redundant this morning, for the sake of not repeating all of that information, I'm not going to really get into any of that this morning. And so if you missed Last week's message, I would encourage you to head on over to linworthroadchurch.com. That's our website, and you can listen to the teaching there. Don't go there right now. After church, okay? Um, but so yeah, if, if you missed that last week, just head over there and uh, get that information. Or if you just want to refresh yourself, um, head over to our website. Last week, we heard about the parable of the hidden treasure and also the parable of the pearl of great value. That, that is hard for me to say for some reason. The parable of the pearl of great value. Within these parables last week, we got to see what the kingdom of God was. We, we got a good picture of what the kingdom of God is. And we also got to see how we as Christians, has, how, how we as humans ought to value the kingdom of God. And today in our parable, we will see what it looks like when a human being when an individual doesn't understand the kingdom of God, when they don't have a grasp on the kingdom of God, when they don't value the kingdom of God, we'll see what it looks like, we'll see the sorts of things that human beings pursue when they don't have a grasp of the kingdom of God, when they don't value the kingdom of God. Today, our parable is the parable of the rich fool, and it can be found in the book of Luke chapter 12. You can turn there now. Luke chapter 12. It's verse 13 through 21. And we're just going to get right into it, okay? Not a very long intro this morning. And so, uh, would you stand with me as I read through our passage this morning? Luke chapter 12, verse 13 through 21. It says, someone in the crowd said to him, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? And he said to them, Take care and be on guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. 
And there I will store all my grain and my goods, and I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, Fool. I was hoping there'd be a picture of Mr. T up on the screen at that part, but I don't think that's going to happen. Fool. This night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, God, we thank you this morning, Father, that you have revealed yourself to us in your word. And Lord, we thank you that you are desiring to, to, to have your Holy Spirit enter into our hearts this morning, to read our hearts, to give us a picture of where our hearts are this morning. God, I pray this morning that every single person in this room would have ears to hear. We would have a heart that desires to hear from you, Lord. And Lord, we pray, God, that you would cause change in our hearts as a result of hearing your word today. I pray that we would write ourselves into this story, Lord. Lord, I pray against the temptation of thinking of how different we are from this person in this parable, or thinking of someone that we may know that reminds us of this person. But God, I pray in some way that we would see ourselves, Lord, and we would use it as an opportunity to come to you and repent and trust that you're faithful to forgive us, Lord, and also that we would worship you. We love you. We pray this in your name. Amen. You can be seated. Okay, so what is going on here in this passage? One of the things that at least this week and last week that we've done in this series, unlike most of our series, is we've jumped right into the middle of a chapter that's in the middle of a book. If you've been here for any period of time, you will know that typically we teach straight through books of the Bible, and I really enjoy that. I really enjoy that type of teaching. One of the dangers that we can run into when we just sort of jump into the middle of a chapter is we lose a lot of context and a lot of background with what's going on in that chapter. And because of that, we, we can tend to think or, or say something about the Word of God that it's not actually saying. We can misquote the Bible. We can get wrong information. And so what I want to do here for a couple of minutes is I just want to give a little bit of background to chapter 12 and what is going on here in our passage. Okay, so if we started the, at, at the beginning of chapter 12, we would see that Jesus is being surrounded by thousands of people. They're coming to hear Jesus. They're coming to see Jesus. And I think maybe by Jesus maybe wanting to do some crowd control because these people are getting a little out of hand, he starts to talk about some pretty unpopular subjects, some pretty weighty uh, topics. He talks about things like hell and persecution. He, he exhorts the crowd to proclaim himself, proclaim Jesus in all situations and in front of all men. You'd think a lot of these people would hear this and be like, I'm out of here. <laughs> I don't want to listen to this. I'm going to go home. Uh, but that was not the case. These people hung around. And what we see happening is this man comes out of nowhere. He shoves up to the front of the crowd. 
as Jesus is teaching his followers, and he says, hey, hey, Jesus, over here, me, right here, yeah, me. Hey, can you go to my brother and tell him to give me my inheritance? This seems so random, right? It's kind of humorous. Um, I sometimes think I have ADD, and I am not saying that in a sarcastic way. I really sometimes think I do. And one of the reasons why I think I do is because I can change the topic of a conversation like no one's business. You ask, you ask my wife, you ask any one of my friends. I could be talking to a friend about a movie that we saw that we really liked, and all of a sudden I'll be like, man, you should have seen this ice cream cone I had the other night, man. It was awesome. It was delicious. And my friend will be like, dude, where did that come from? We were just talking about the movie. This guy is like on a whole nother level though. In front of thousands of people, he just goes up to Jesus and interrupts him. He doesn't care about anything that he's talking about. And he says, can you go to my brother and give me my inheritance? This was this guy's one mission, this guy's one goal. He didn't care at all about what Jesus had to say. Well, how does Jesus respond? He says, who made me the judge over this situation? As random as this situation seems, uh, if we understand the culture and sort of how people operated in this time, it, it actually wasn't that random at all. It was very typical for a person in this time period, in this culture, to go to a respected rabbi and say, hey, I have this dispute with my family, or I have this dispute with a coworker, or with a friend. Can you come as a judge or as an arbiter and settle this dispute between me and this person? This is very common. But instead of Jesus getting involved, he said, who made me the judge? And so it sort of seems like this guy gets the shaft. It sort of seems like Jesus just blows him off. Jesus, if we look at our passage, he uses this opportunity to say, I'm not going to help you, but let me use you as an opportunity to teach my followers about greed and about coveting. How does Jesus get on this topic of greed and coveting from this man? I mean, it seems like all this man is asking for is for his share of something that he is supposed to get. Well, again, in this day and culture, it was very common for a family to not sparse out their inheritance. It was very uncommon for um, a family to say, all right, you get this part of the inheritance, you get this part of the inheritance— Families in this time period kept their, their inheritance, their estate together, and it was mainly for business purposes. And so this man coming to Jesus and saying, I want my piece of the pie. I want to break away from my family. Jesus picked up on this and sensed that there was some greed. There was a sense of coveting in this man's heart. Also, if you read the passage carefully, you can see that this man has no desire to use Jesus as a neutral judge in the situation. Instead, he goes to Jesus asking for a defense attorney. He says, will you go to my brother for me in my stead and get my inheritance for me? This is not how a judge operates. This is how a defense attorney operates. And Jesus picks up on this as well. And he picks up on this idea that this man has greed in his heart. And so this man in the flesh, in the crowd, in front of his followers, Jesus sees it as an opportunity to teach his followers. 
And he teaches and he, he encourages his followers to guard against coveting. Now, what is coveting? It's not a word that we use a lot today in our vocabulary, really. We talk about greed a lot. When you talk about politics, we always talk about the greedy politicians, right? Uh, greed is very, um, is, is, is very prevalent and very present in our culture today, but we very rarely talk about coveting. Thomas Watson, a 17th century pastor, described coveting this way. He said, coveting is an insatiable desire for getting the world. Very simple definition. Coveting is this deep, deep yearning within our heart to possess things, and in most cases, to possess things that we can't have or that we can't afford. One of the biggest ways that we fall victim today to coveting or that we fall into this temptation or given to this temptation to covet is through advertising. The whole point of advertising is to make you feel less content with what you have. It's to make you believe, I need to buy that product, even if you don't need it at all. Some of us obsess over the fact that we're still rocking the iPhone 3GS that came out like 10 years ago, while everyone around us has the brand new model. And Apple does an amazing job of making you feel like you need this in your life. You need it. This is the whole point of advertising. And we, we can apply this to every area of our lives. When our, when our friend gets a bigger house or our sibling gets a bigger house, we feel like, man, I'm falling behind. I need to get a bigger house now. When a friend gets a new car and we're still driving a car that's like 10 or 15 years old, we feel like, man, I'm falling behind. I, I need to go get a new car now. We get so desperate to get these things that we eventually spend ourselves empty and we go into debt to buy more and then we end up trapped. This is where we are as a culture. This is where some of us are in here today. Do you struggle with these things? Do you find yourself getting emotionally stirred up when you see certain pieces of advertising? I sure do. I really do. Um, just to give a little bit of a background here, I, I grew up in a lower class family. I grew up uh, in this little town called Pataskala, Ohio. It's about 35 minutes east. I think I heard a woo out there. Um, <clears throat> it's about 35 minutes east of here. It's a small town. And my parents got divorced at a very young age. Well, when I was at a very young age, um, they weren't at a young age, relatively young. But anyway, um, I was in third grade. And after my parents got divorced, my mom was forced to work her tail off. I vividly remember one period in my childhood where my mom had three separate jobs. Can you imagine that? It's, it's one of the things about my mom that to this day I just, I still really respect about her and I, I really love about her. She did everything she could to provide for our family. But with that, we were still a family that was in this lower class. We were still a family that didn't really have a lot. And so being a kid, I was constantly surrounded by peers and by friends who always had the better shoes, who always had the better bike, who lived in the bigger house, who always had the better snacks. That was a big one for me. I'm like, man, I'm eating pretzels over here. You're eating gummy bears, you know? Like, I wanted the gummy bears. And so growing up this way, it created this feeling in me of, I want something more. I want something different. 
I found myself, even after I became a Christian in high school, being in this place where I wasn't trusting the Lord with my provision. I didn't even understand what that meant. I didn't even understand what it looked like that God was my provider. And to be honest with you, I still struggle with this today. I'm not going to stand up here and act like this is not an issue for me, okay? I'm a dad. I have two kids. And I have a beautiful wife. And with that comes a whole new set of things in my life that I feel like I'm falling behind on. I remember clearly about a year and a half ago going to this birthday party. And it was a party with a lot of friends I hadn't seen in a long time who were in sort of the same life stage that I was in. We pull into the party and... I mean, these two, two or three specific friends pulled in at the same time as us. They have kids about the same age. And they were all driving minivans. And I remember thinking or feeling this weird pressure right in that moment instantly. I need to go buy a minivan. They have the minivan. Does that, is, that, is that a thing that makes you a good parent? Is that a thing that makes you a good provider for your family? Is that you have a minivan? I started to feel all this weird pressure. To be honest with you, I hate minivans. I don't want a minivan. No offense to you minivan lovers out there. I know there are some, but they're just not my cup of tea. And so it's more evidence for me that shows that there's something in my heart that's lacking and it's causing me to believe that I even need to buy this thing that I hate. Another big one for me here lately, and I'll I'll make this brief, is I really want a Harley Davidson. Bob Waltman knows this because I talk to him about it all the time. I really want a Harley Davidson. And I want to make the distinction here really quick that there is nothing wrong with desiring something or uh, dreaming someday that I'm going to get this thing that I really like. But at least for me, that line between desiring something and coveting for it is very blurry and is a very thin line. And sometimes I have a hard time figuring out where I'm landing on that side of the line. And so with this Harley Davidson, man, I, I can like catch myself during the day thinking, like daydreaming, like daydreaming that I'm out, I'm out on the open road, the wind's in my face, and I just, I get this feeling when I'm thinking about that, that, man, once I get this Harley, my life will be a lot better. There, there will be this piece of my life that gets completed. It's silly. Well, one of the measures that I've taken to make that better is I've started a GoFundMe page to get a new Harley— <laughs> I will send you the link after this service, and you can just go check it out. I didn't actually do that. That was a joke. And so, this is what coveting is. It's this insatiable desire that we all have in our hearts to get these things in our lives that make us feel like, if I only had this thing, then my life would be fill in the blank. What's the solution to coveting? I'm going to get really spiritual here. I'm going to um, get really Christian here. The only solution that I know of from personal experience to, this obs- to, to end this obsessive pursuit is to run hard and to chase after Christ. This feeling, this insatiable desire that we all have is something that we were born with. We were all born with this God-shaped void in our hearts. And we were born with this void in our hearts because thousands of years ago, in the garden, Adam and Eve grew discontent with what they had. 
They grew discontent with the relationship that they had with the God, the creator of the universe, and they believed that there was something more for them. And so they chased after it. And as a result, they sinned, they fractured their relationship with God, they fractured humanity for the, for the rest of the future. The Bible says that we are all sinners, that we have all been infected with this, um, this virus that we carry around with us because of Adam and Eve. And like Nick shared last week, we have been making every attempt to get back to that place. We've been making every attempt to get back to the garden as humans, whether you know it or not. And for a lot of us, we pursue and chase after the wrong thing. And once we start down that road, we find ourselves in this lifelong pursuit of going to the next thing, and then to the next thing, and then to the next thing. It never works. You will always be left empty. The only solution is to run after Christ. Christ is the only person that can fill that void in your heart. And so Jesus warns against coveting. This is what coveting is. I hope I, de- I hope I gave you a good picture of what that looks like. And to go a step further, Jesus helps his followers by saying this parable, by telling this parable, the parable that we're in today. And so I'm going to read it again for us. It's verse 16 through verse 21. And he told them a parable saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, drink, relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasures for himself and is not rich toward God. Okay, so what are some things that we know about this man in this parable? Well, we know that he's a farmer, which makes a lot of sense. Jesus, he, he had a habit of using imagery and language that his crowd could understand. This was a very agrarian culture. Most of these people were farmers. And so it wouldn't have made any sense for him to say, there's this guy on Wall Street that lives in a skyscraper, that works in a skyscraper. He's a stock broker or whatever. And that wouldn't have made any sense. And so he used this picture of a farmer. We know this man is already wealthy. This barn that he had, or these barns that he had, are completely dispensable for him. When I run out of storage, I'll just tear them down, and I have enough resources to build new ones. And so we know that this man is already wealthy. We know that this man makes plans. He's a planner. He plans to store all of his extra grain or whatever, and, and, and everything, that he, everything else that he has into these new barns that he's going to build. So we have this man. He receives this amazing harvest. And I would contend that this amazing uh, harvest is a total act from God. This man was not prepared for it. He didn't even know or think that he was going to get this much grain. And so the Lord provided for him this amazing harvest. And he has a storage dilemma. And so the plan is, let's tear down my barns and let's build bigger ones. So that at a certain point in my life, I can say to my soul, you have enough 
Just relax. Stop working. Take it easy. Indulge yourself. Use your possessions to bring yourself pleasure. So what's the issue here? What makes this man a fool? I mean, it seems to me like this guy is simply living the American dream, right? Work hard, save up a ton of money, collect a bunch of stuff, so that one day you can get to a place in your life where you can quit your job and you can sit on your front porch and you can just relax. You can spend the rest of your life indulging in things that make you happy and bring you pleasure. It seems like our culture would say that this guy is very prudent. I mean, the fact that he planned to build bigger barns so that he would store his crops says that, well, hey, at least he didn't just store what he, he could store, and then he just left the rest out in the field to, to go to waste, right? And so a lot of people would say that this man was even wise to plan like this. So what makes this man a fool? Well, I think there are a few things here that Jesus wants to see in this man that does make him a fool. The first thing that I want us to look at here, or I want us to see, is this man never saw beyond himself. Out of all of the parables in the Bible, this parable wins the trophy for possessive pronouns. Eleven times this guy uses the word I or my. For all of you grammar police out there, I'm pretty sure possessive pronoun is right, but if it's not, I'm sorry, okay? Don't judge me. But he uses the word I and my quite a bit. Jesus depicts this man as someone who is asking questions to himself about himself, about what he's going to do with his stuff. And even at one point, he has a conversation with his soul. When was the last time you spoke to your soul? I don't think I've ever spoken to my soul. Um, And so this guy is all about himself. Daryl L. Bach, he wrote a commentary on this passage, on this parable, and he says this, With this man, there is only self-interest, His view, in his view, he, like the famous American investment company, has made money the old-fashioned way. He has earned it. So after he stores his grain, he can relax into a totally self-indulgent life of ease. Take life easy, eat, drink, and be merry. This phrase, eat, drink, and be merry, recalls the biblical and Jewish texts of hedonism as well as Greek culture. Almost every culture recognizes that using the creation for strictly selfish ends is a distortion. Listen, the issue here is not that the man had a lot of grain. Okay? The issue here isn't that he had enough resources to build a new barn. That's not the issue. Some of us in here have jobs that pay really well. And we've been very blessed by that. Some of us in here have a lot of property and a lot of resources. That's not the issue here. That's not the issue that Jesus is trying to convey to his followers. The issue that Jesus is trying to convey here, in part, at least in this first point, is that this man had completely selfish motives and completely selfish desires for the things that he desired to do with the stuff that God gave him. Okay, so that's the first point. The second thing I think Jesus wants to see here is this man 
had a stewardship issue. And really, these issues sort of are intertwined with one another. Like, they really are relatable to the other issues. This man had a stewardship issue. What is a steward? A steward is someone who is appointed by another individual to care for, to look after, to maintain that individual's property. And so when your friend says, hey, can you watch my house for me while I go on vacation? They're asking you to be a steward of their property. They're asking you to come over to care for, to look after, to protect, to maintain their house, to mow the grass, to get the mail, to let the dogs out. That's what a steward is. When I was thinking about this question, what is a steward, my mind is going to reveal a sense of um, my nerdiness, um, but my mind automatically went to the movie The Lord of the Rings. Any Lord of the Rings fans? Yeah. I'm not that big of a nerd. Um, it, it went to the Lord of the Rings, and it particularly went to the movie or the book, The Return of the King. There's this character named Lord Denethor, okay? And he is the steward of Gondor. Gondor is like the city of cities in Middle-earth. It's the city of the king. And this man, Lord Denethor, has been appointed to be a steward of Gondor because Gondor has been without a king for many years. And so this man's job is literally to maintain, to look after, and to protect Gondor. And at least in the movie, this man is portrayed as doing a very poor job of protecting the city from Sauron and the orcs and all of that nerdy stuff. If you haven't seen Lord of the Rings, you need to go see it. And so this is a steward. And whether you are aware of this or not this morning, you are a steward. You are a steward. You have been created in part to be a steward. What do I mean by this? Psalm 24.1 says that every single thing that exists, wrap your mind around that, everything that exists that we can see, that we can't see, belongs to God. It's his. He created it and he owns it. Genesis chapter 2 verse 15 says, The Lord God took the man Adam and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. And so right after God creates everything, right after God creates Adam, he appoints him to steward the garden. He appoints him to care for and look after and maintain the garden. And so for us today, we are stewards. God has partially, in in part, put us here on this earth to maintain and steward his creation. Everything that you own. Is this how you view your possessions this morning? Do you view them as your possessions? Or do you view them as God's? And that he's blessed you with them, and that he's lent them to you and given them to you so that you would be a good steward. A steward does these things for the good of that person. And so for us, with our possessions. We are to look at our possessions as God's, and we are a steward with the aim of bringing him glory and honor and praise through them. As we can see from this parable, this man obviously did not have this heart. This man did not view himself as a steward. My barns, my grain, my goods, my soul. These statements convey a strong sense of ownership 
rather than stewardship. Rather than believing that this stuff is God's stuff, as it says in Psalm 24, and that it ought to be used for God's glory and to serve others, this man saw everything around him that was his for his own glory. He saw it as a means to his own end, and that end was to bring himself as much pleasure as possible. This man was trying to establish his own kingdom here on earth. Which leads into the third issue with this man. The last thing I, I think that Jesus wants us, us to see, I'm sure, there may be more, but I, I saw three. Um, that Jesus wants us to see is that this man did not have an eternal perspective. It's very apparent that this man's security, that his life pursuit was wrapped up in this retirement plan that he was hoping in, that he placed all of his faith in, that he spoke to his soul about. This retirement plan consisted of a life of only living for self as if this is all there was. He thought to himself in his heart, this is all there was. I'm going to live it up here in this life while I can. This man had no thought or no consideration that there was something else, something better. And as we see this parable end, it's a very, I think a very tragic parable. As we see it end, Jesus depicts it this way. That God comes to him and calls him a fool. God comes to him and says, you have completely wasted your life. What have you done? You are a fool. He tells him that the life he lived was completely pointless and completely meaningless. And that his soul was required of him. This is a fancy way of, just, uh, of saying, it's time to die. You're coming with me. This man could not see past himself. This man was a poor steward. And this man lacked an eternal perspective in his life. These are some things that made this man foolish. And this parable drives to the last thing that Jesus says in verse 21. He says, So is the one who lays up treasures for himself and is not rich towards God. And so he sort of gets out of storytelling mode and he addresses the crowd again and he says, the guy in this story, if you choose to live your life this way, this is how it's going to end for you. This is what you have to look forward to. If you choose to live your life this way, you will have completely wasted your life. Your life will be a total waste and totally pointless. But he says something else here too. He mentions this phrase, rich towards God. What does this phrase mean? What does rich, being rich towards God mean? It's sort of an unusual phrase. We know we can contrast this phrase with this man's life. We know that laying up treasures for yourself here on earth is a life lived that's not rich towards God. And so, what does it mean to be rich towards God? I want to read this verse to you in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 17 through 18. It says, As for the rich in this present age, charge them to not be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, 
but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. Okay, so this first part of this passage, it says, As for the rich in this present age, charge them to not be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of their riches. This is exactly what the man in this parable did. This is exactly how this man lived his life. He was arrogant, and his hope and his faith was put into everything that he had. And then it goes on to say, They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasures for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Paul here is addressing rich believers in this church. Okay, and so with that, I just, I want to emphasize again that the issue here is not if you have a lot of money. The issue here is not if you have a lot of stuff. We see Paul addressing these wealthy folks in this church. And he doesn't say, hey, you shouldn't be rich. You can't be rich. You're a Christian. What he says is, don't be arrogant. Don't place your faith and hope in those things. Instead, he goes on to say that you are to do good with what you have. You are to be rich in good works and generous. You're to, you're to be ready to share. This guy was not ready to share his stuff. He most likely was surrounded by the poorest of poor. He most likely was surrounded by people whose main problem wasn't, where am I going to store all my stuff, but where's my next meal going to come from? And he had no plan or no, re- no plan to share with these folks and no regard for them whatsoever. The problem with talking about physical wealth and physical riches is that it's very relative. For all of us in here, there is always going to be someone that's got way more than us, and there's always going to be someone that's got less than us. And the fact that we live in the United States, thinking globally, gives every single one of us a leg up with physical wealth. No matter where you fall in our culture today, we are all relatively wealthy, wealthy considering where the rest of the world is. In some countries, a sign of wealth is that you own a pair of shoes. I have like eight pairs of shoes in my closet, three of which I don't think I even wear. I don't want to mention how many shoes my wife has in her closet. Um, I don't want to get in trouble there, but um, that is a sign of wealth. And so I would make the argument that Paul is talking to every one of us in here, that we are all relatively wealthy in the grand scheme of the world when it comes to our physical possessions. And so this verse speaks to all of us. Do not be arrogant in your wealth. Do not put your hope and trust in this retirement plan that you've put away. But be ready to share. Be ready to serve. Be generous. And so being rich towards God, I want to give us um, just a few questions here and um, sort of as a mean for our application this morning in regards to what it looks like to live a life rich towards God. The first question I want to ask is are you generous with your time? Are you generous with your time? If we believe Psalm 24.1, if we believe that everything belongs to God, then we have to believe that even time itself belongs to God. And that your free time that you have is not your own, but it's God's. And we are called to steward that time. And so what, am I saying that we, we can never take time out of our lives to enjoy ourselves or to relax? No, that's not what I'm saying. But if you're spending 12 hours a day watching Netflix 
or 12 hours a day playing the Xbox might not be a good indicator that you are being good steward with your time or that you're being generous with your time. Maybe the Holy Spirit right now is putting it on your hearts that you need to be more generous with your time. Maybe um, you should get involved in serving here at Linworth. Maybe you should um, think of creative ways to reach out to your neighbors. Maybe specifically a neighbor who is in financial need or in need of some other way. Do you view your time as God's time? Do you invest your time at all into others' lives? Do you invest your time at all into the advancement of the kingdom of God, into the gospel? Second question. Are you generous with your finances? Um, As I was working through this teaching, I know this was a big one for Jacqueline and me. Uh, It's been a big one over the last few years. And um, I know it's unpopular to talk about money in church. I know it's not the fun thing to do. And I'm not going to stand up here and say, you need to get out your checkbook and you need to put a $100 bill in the offering plate this morning. That's not what I'm here to say. But again, like the first question, how are you viewing your money this morning? Do you view your money as, I worked for it, I earned it, I busted my back for it, it's mine. And I should be able to spend it the way I want to spend it. I shouldn't have to give it to other people. It's my money. Do you view your money that way? Or do, again, do you believe Psalm 24 and believe that this is God's money? God blessed me with this job. God blessed me with this provision. Do you use your money in such a way that invests in others' lives? And again, invest in the gospel and the advancement of the kingdom of God. And then the last thing I want to ask is, do you plan for the future? Now, by this, I'm not asking, are you putting away into a 401k plan, okay? There's a really good show on 610 called The Mutual Fund Show. You can check that out if you want to get information about that. That's not what I'm asking about right now. The type of future I'm asking about is our eternal future as believers in Jesus Christ. Do you live within the reality that there is more to life than this right now? Or is your hope and your pursuit in life this idea that 10, 20, 30 years from now, I'm going to have enough money saved up so that I can quit my job, play a bunch of golf, smoke some cigars, and sit on my front porch and drink sweet tea? That's the American dream. That's what we're all taught to chase after. That someday, maybe the last 20, 10, 20 years of my life, I can just sit back and relax. And then then we die. And that's it. It seems like such a waste of our life. But so many of us, including me, think a lot about that and worry a lot about that and place our hope and our trust in that. Paul says in 1 Timothy that those things are not guarantees. We've seen recently with the economy that so many people have lost their retirement that they've been putting away for for years. And so that thing that they're hoping in for is gone. And so what are they going to do? They're stuck. Do we live within the reality that God is our ultimate treasure and that our future and eternity, the end, the means of the end of the gospel is that we get God. We get to be with God in the new kingdom that Nick talked about last Sunday, where we finally will 
get back to that place in the garden. In closing this morning, I want to fix our eyes to Christ, who is always our example. And this morning, Jesus is our example of what it looks like to live a life rich toward God. In Philippians chapter 2, verse 6 through 8, it says, Though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus, in all of his richness, in all of his glory, in all of his deity, did not sit in heaven and say, I have everything I need up here. I'm just going to sit on my throne and take it easy. This passage says that he emptied himself, that he gave up his privileges, and he did it for you and for me. He did it to fulfill the will that God had for him in his life and for the plan of salvation for mankind. He lived a life rich towards God by giving his life. He did this for you and me. So with all of this this morning, I feel like we, we discussed a lot of things here. Where are you at with all of this this morning? Do you feel like you're the mouse on the exercise wheel that's just running and running and running and not getting anywhere? Do you feel like a person who is constantly giving themselves to everything, anything, and everyone with the idea of someday I will be fulfilled. I'll have significance in my life. I just want to say from personal experience again, no matter what you use to fill that void in your heart, it will not work. You will you will never experience a fulfilling life. You will, it, you will never experience a meaningful life, a joyful life. There's only one person that can fill that void in your heart. I want to encourage you this morning, if you're here and you haven't asked Christ into your heart, he will fill that void. I want to encourage you to ask him into your heart this morning. It's so easy. And if you need someone to help you, there, there are going to be people down here in front after the service, who want to pray for you. Who want to pray that prayer with you to receive Christ into your heart. Through the Holy Spirit, Jesus will help you move into a place where you quit pursuing possessions in this life and you move to a place where you pursue a life that's rich toward God. Let's pray. Jesus, um, thank you again for your word. And thank you for emptying yourself, God. Our only hope is in you, Lord. Um, I pray, Lord, that um, you've pierced our hearts with your word this morning. God, I pray that for some of us, um, you've comforted us in areas that um, we've just felt uneasy in this morning, Lord. That you've embraced us in those areas, God. But Lord, I, I pray that for others of us, Lord, that 
Lord, I, I pray that you will disturb us, that you have disturbed us, God, in areas where we are content, in areas where um, we're just fine with where we're at, Lord. And I pray, God, that you would create in us a desire to want more, more of you. I pray that you would create in us a desire to want to run after you harder, to want to chase after you. Lord, we pray against this constant desire in our hearts to want to just stop and live for ourselves. Lord, would you help us to not waste our lives this morning? Lord, would you help us to understand more and more every day what it means to be rich toward you? God, we pray for this offering. Lord, we pray that we would view this offering as an act of worship to you, as an act of um, thanksgiving for your provision, an act of stewardship, Lord. We love you, God. We thank you for this morning. And I pray that we can respond to you in singing and in worship. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.